This is Christian Questions. David Allen Coe once said, It's not the beauty of a building you should look at. It's the construction of the foundation that will stand the test of time. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Christian Questions Talk Radio with a Purpose with Jonathan and Rick. This isn't your typical Christian commentary. We love talking with our audience, and we promise to never talk at you like so many talk shows do today. This is a conversation about biblical topics as we look at them from a different perspective. And Rick, that perspective is based on godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, all in a politically free zone. Jonathan, the best part is this. We talk and you listen, and then you talk and we listen. You can contact us at our website, ChristianQuestions.com. I'm Rick. And I'm Jonathan. And folks, we're truly glad you've chosen to spend some time with us on this fine Sunday morning. Good morning, Jonathan. What's happening? Good morning, Rick. You're not in the studio. That's what's happening. Yeah, do you miss me? I do. Where are you? (laughs) Actually, uh, Trish and I are out at a Bible conference in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh, and we actually have got a room full of people here with us who got up early to uh, be part of the uh, the program this morning. So uh, it's a really good thing going on here. Uh, Jonathan, what's the question? What's the subject? What's the scripture? All right. Well, our question this morning is, so where does the Bible come from? And our theme text is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness. And, Jonathan, the Bible is not only an ancient book, it's also an incredibly unique book. For it was written over a period of about 1,500 years by many authors in several languages. It covers history and prophecy, moral and legal guidance, family counsel, spiritual enlightenment, and a firm pathway to finding and appreciating the God and creator of the universe and his plan. The Bible. It's a book made up of 66 books, if you will. How do we know, then, that we have the collections of writings that have, that, that's the right collection? How do we know if we are omitting some books that should belong in the scriptures, and maybe including others that shouldn't belong? Why do we think we have the Bible in its entirety, the right Bible? Who made the decision anyway to make the Bible the Bible? It's an important question, Jonathan, and uh, in order to be able to discuss that question uh, this morning, we had to bring in some experts. All right, great. So sitting with me here in, 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 in the studio, uh, <laughs> in the campus room at Johnstown University, actually, is, uh, first of all, is Jim Parkinson. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. How are you? Uh, better than I deserve, which is another thing to be grateful for. <laughs> and, uh, Jim, just very quickly, you have made uh, a lifetime of uh, studying uh, Bible manuscripts. Well, uh, yes, I guess that's true. Uh, it's not the only thing that I'm interested in. I want to be a balanced Christian, but uh, uh, yes, it started when I was at the University of Michigan back in 19, uh, it'd be 1959, I think. I was one year old. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, we have also with us Len Grice. Good morning, Len. Good morning, Rick. And you have a, a real interest, and uh, you're, you're not quite the, the, the scholar on, on manuscripts that uh, Jim is. I resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, that's true, but Jim and I go back a long way. We actually come from the same hometown, Jackson, Michigan, and uh, Jim used to come over to a house all the time, and we would certainly discuss a lot of 
areas of scripture and so uh he was actually one of my early mentors so i I appreciate all the work he's done and my interest has been ever since we've had attacks on the scripture starting back with the da vinci code and all the things going on i started you know taking a harder look at things and wanted to make sure that we understood why things are such as they are in this day of skepticism it's very difficult uh, for to get people to reason and look at research, and, and the, with the internet available, you can pop up anything and take it as gospel, and that's the problem. That is the very problem. subject we have today. They take it as gospel when it's not. So, so with uh, with Len and Jim here, we're going to take a hard look at how the Bible came to be the Bible. It is a fascinating, fascinating story, sto- story, folks. So please, you've got to stay with us uh, for 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 the two hours. So let, let's get started with this. Um, Jonathan, let's just get started with uh, a basic scripture to just put us in, in the mindset of moving forward on this. Let's start with Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And though not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. And I, I love that scripture because it says every word of God is pure. So what we want to establish this morning, gentlemen, is what is the Word of God, and how do we know it's the Word of God? Now, to get started with that part of the conversation, let's just go to a soundbite, uh, and it, it's, a, it's from a, a documentary on books of the Bible, and uh, it just, it's about 45 seconds of, of drama, if you will, and, and we're, we're going to use this uh, to, to kick off our conversation. So, Fred, let's go to that first soundbite. For nearly 2,000 years, everything Christians knew about Jesus came from the Gospels of the Christian Bible, accounts by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Could this be an actual lost account of the life of Jesus, written by Simon Peter, the hand-picked leader of the Apostles? The discovery set off shockwaves throughout the world of biblical scholarship, and that shockwave continues as new Gospels, lost Gospels, emerge from numerous archaeological digs. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and even the Gospel of Judas. So, Len, when you hear that, it's it's drama. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, it's drama, and I, I must admit, Rick, I love to watch these programs. And, you know, most recently they've had programs dramatizing the Book of Acts, and that's been fun to watch because it's still in what you don't know, and, and it doesn't matter what it, whether it's fact or fiction, but... It's very true. I mean, the, the drama that loved to say, you know, why should we believe what we have traditionally believed? It's in keeping with the times. And they have found manuscripts, legitimate manuscripts. So we're going to talk about that as we go through the program. Do these manuscripts fit in? Do they dovetail with the scriptures that we know to be scripture or that we think are scripture? Or do they just not belong? We're going to get to that all uh, very soon. Folks, if you have a thought, you'd like to get in on the conversation, it's 866-985-4255. Toll free, 866-985-4ALL. We are live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. And that means we're on right now. And uh, this is a great program to sign up for CQ Rewind, the full edition, especially with uh, all the information that we're going to be giving out on this. Okay. So let's get started. Let's look at the Old Testament first. Jim, how did the Old Testament, and I'm going to ask you a big question and ask you to answer it in a short time. How did the whole Old Testament come to be the Old Testament? 
Well, we start out with the writings of Moses, and uh, that would be the first five books of the uh, Bible. And uh, it is said that Moses wrote them. I think the evidence is pretty strong that uh, he did write them, all except for the last five verses that describe his tomb. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, that makes perfect sense. So you start out with the five books. That's right. And then? Uh, after that, we have the book of Joshua, which presumably he wrote most of. Um, and then we have the period of the judges, and we do not know specifically who wrote it, but it's a history. And then we have the books of the Psalms, which is by David, and Proverbs, which is by Solomon. And then we have the books of the prophets. Uh, the prophets were rejected by those who had charge of the temple because the prophets were prophesying against them. Right. But uh, they were accepted by the Pharisees and the rest of the Jewish community. Back in Old Testament time. That's right. So, so when, when we look at that, so you've got the, the, the major prophets and then you have the minor prophets. That's well, right. How come a minor prophet doesn't get to be a major prophet? Only that his writings were shorter. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, 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 Len, when we look at the Old Testament, is there a lot of controversy about the Old Testament itself, or is most of the controversy about the New Testament? I, I think there's far more controversy about the New Testament, only because that's where Christianity traditionally kind of focuses. If you look at you know, what are called New Testament Christians. I mean, people, we hear that term a lot, and there, there's a lot of focus. Many people don't really, many Christians don't even study the Old Testament. Uh, you know, we take a different perspective that the Old Testament certainly is the basis for belief as much as the New, and that they actually uh, ought to be studied together because of the proof. But I think the fact that they were written mainly for the Jewish nation, and it's the history of the Jewish nation, that's why I think there's far more interest in discussing the New Testament among Christians than there is the Old Testament. All right, now, with the, with the Old Testament, though, I mean, let, let, let's look at the importance. You're, you're, you're alluding to its importance here, but if we go back to the early Christian church, Jim, how did, how did, they, how did they, what did they study? Well, they studied the writings of the Hebrew Old Testament. So, because the the Christian Church came out of a Jewish origin, they went That's back right. to Jewish history. And uh, the Christian claims to be the fulfillment of Judaism. Okay. So, when they uh, uh, they were studying the things of the Old Testament, we see particularly in Matthew how scripture after scripture after scripture of the prophecies is quoted to show that Jesus is fulfilling those prophecies. And. And, and Len, when you look at it, uh, and you look at the prophecies, there's, there's several prophets mentioned by name in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Right. And that, I think that's the sanction and the key, that, that Jesus didn't ignore these. Right. He if we're trying to follow Jesus, right. you know, we ought to be looking at the same things he was looking at. And especially, as Jim says, because the fulfillment of prophecy that was there in him as the Messiah, and uh, also... Many of those uh, are testimonies that he built his own prophecies about the end times on. And and so, so Jesus spoke his own prophecies, his own words of prophecy, but he spent a lot of time quoting words of prophecy from several prophets at several times, uh, talking about Moses and Abraham. So you have, within the New Testament, very strong verification for much of what we, we've always talked about about the Old Testament. 
Yeah, I think too, Rick, if you look at something like Psalm 22. Okay. Now there's one David wrote, but yet when we look at that, we see that fulfilled by Jesus, and he quoted from that psalm extensively on the very last day of his life. So if it was that important to him that he quoted from it the last day of his life, certainly it seems to me it'd be something we ought to study. So the first thing that, that we look at here as we sort of set the groundwork, and, and this first segment really is simply groundwork, the Old Testament doesn't have a lot of controversy around it. Jim, are there books in the Old Testament that are um, uh, maybe less verifiable than other books of the Old Testament? Uh, yeah, tell me, less verifiable in what sense? Well, then maybe you don't have as much proof of, or in, in terms of manuscript back, uh, background and so forth. Oh, all right. Um, we had the oldest manuscripts in Hebrew, uh, say, a century ago, back to maybe the order of 1000 A.D. And uh, that uh, left some questions in uh, people, especially the minds of those who do not believe it, as to what was actually verifiable and what was not until we got to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have parts of every one of the Old Testament books except Esther. This caused some people to say... uh, well, we wonder why Esther was not canonical and various... Uh, canonical? What does canonical mean? Ah, that's good. Uh, it means that that's the rule, that's the authorization, that's okay. the foundation. And uh, so, the, let's see where I was. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, uh, I think it was Frank Moorcross Jr. pointed out that uh, the, there's only a tiny fragment of a much larger book, the Chronicles, that was discovered. And he says, um, I think if our worm were just a little hungrier, people would be west- questioning whether Chronicles was canonical. <laughs> because because the manuscripts did, weren't, weren't preserved in a way that the worms couldn't get them, is what you're saying. If, if you think about it, though, preserve, those manuscripts being preserved is a miracle in itself, and it helps key us in on who really wrote the Bible. And that really is the question for today. So, folks, as we go into, into, this, into this break, we're looking at the establishment of the Old Testament as a basis for the New Testament, and that's really where all the controversy begins. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guests, Len Grice and Jim Parkinson, and our subject, So Where Does the Bible Come From? Coming up, what about the Apocrypha, the other books found in the Septuagint? Why aren't they in our Bible? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick and also with our special guests, Len Grice and Jim Parkinson. And we're talking about, so where does the Bible come from? To be a part of our program, call toll-free 866 985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. And our website is ChristianQuestions.com. And don't forget, because you all have our app on your smartphones, all you need to do to be a part of the program is hit message and uh, send us a message so that we can put it on the air. And if you don't have our app for your smartphone, what are you waiting for? It's a free service. It will make your smartphone much wiser. So give it a try, the Christian Questions app. Okay, 
So in, in the first segment, we talked a little bit about setting the groundwork of the Old Testament and how the Old Testament really is a, is a foundation. It is Jewish history and was widely accepted, obviously, in the New Testament. Now, in some cases, our Catholic friends, for instance, have a section of a Bible that we don't have uh, called the Apocrypha. First of all, what is the Apocrypha, and why is it that it's not in the Bible that I use, for instance? Jim, let's get started. What, what, um, actually, be, before I ask you to do that, Jonathan, just read, read a couple of lines from ChristianCourier.com that gives a general description of apocryphal books. The Apocrypha is a collection of documents generally produced between the 2nd century B.C. and the 1st century A.D., which were not a part of the original Old Testament canon. The names of these books are 1st Esdras, 2nd Esdras, the rest of Esther, Song of the Three Holy Children, History of Susanna, Bel, and Dragon, Prayer of Manassas, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Bruch, 1st Maccabees, and 2nd Maccabees. The last seven of these are incorporated into the Roman Catholic editions of the Bible. The Catholic Council of Trent in 1546 affirmed the canonicity of these books as found in the Latin Vulgate and condemned those who rejected them. Okay, so, so Jim, there's a collection of writings that come under the heading of the Apocrypha. Give us your, your take and your understanding of what they are and, and where they belong. Uh, the, there were four books of Maccabees originally, uh, two of which appear, the first two, in the uh, Roman Catholic Bible, such as the Douay version. But uh, these were not found with originals in Greek, at least until the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And, and, and when were the Dead Sea Scrolls found? Just for 1947, the first ones were found. Okay. Okay. And for a few years afterwards, with uh, uh, archaeologists uh, trying to compete with Arab Bedouins uh, to find more scrolls, with the Arabs winning most of the battles. Okay. <laughs> All right, so continue. Okay. And so uh, there have been fragments found of some of the apocryphal books in Hebrew. That's not quite as clear as to whether... Uh, the Greek was translated from them, or they were translated from the uh, Greek. Okay, so... They were always held apart from the rest of the Bible as far as uh, the Jews were concerned. Okay, Len, any, any sense on... on well, I think the apocryphal books uh, were an addition to a lot of things that were floating around at the time. I mean, there were there was a number of, of Gospels, for example, going around. Rick, I... You stop me when you want, but I just want to read you some of the books that were actually being circulated and now are being claimed that maybe we ought to look at these as a part of the Bible. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Greek Fragments of Thomas, the Secret Book of James, the Dialogue of the Savior, the Gospel of Mary, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Thomas is pretty popular. Yeah. The Infancy Gospel of James. Well, he was a big doubter, so... That's what they say. The Gospel of Peter, which someone mentioned. The secret Gospel of Mark. Now, that's one that you want to look at, right? <laughs> uh, and we go on with the Gospel of the Hebrews, the Gospel of the Ebionites, the Gospel of the Nazareans. Okay, so we get the point. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of, so, so are you saying, then, that the apocryphal writings are similar 
in, in scope to those Gospels? I wouldn't say that, would you, Jim? I mean, it's not really the same category. Those are what I consider kind of made-up things. There's some historical benefit that we get from the Apocryphal, because we have a good history of the Maccabees, for example. And the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books were written before, in, in, for the most part, before these all of these other Gospels, because a lot of it was written before Christ, is that right? We have a difference in the Apocrypha of the Old Testament and the Apocrypha of the New Testament. Okay. The Apocrypha of the New Testament, I think, is discarded by virtually everyone. And when you read the Apocrypha of the New Testament, you can see why. They're a totally different character than the rest of the New Testament. Okay, so they don't, they don't follow a pattern that we see in New Testament writings. Uh-huh. So why is it then that you look at it and you say the, the, the Apocrypha of the Old Testament really doesn't belong with the Old Testament writings? What, what would be your reason for saying that? I would say a reason is that... Uh, they were preserved only in the Greek, not in the Hebrew. Okay. All right, so it is, it, by being preserved only in the Greek, they didn't have the same historical background that the Hebrew scriptures and, and fragments that have been found have. That's right. Okay. Len? Uh, only that we, we have a, a lot of material written, uh, you know, that's historically verifiable in much of the Older Testament. We're finding archaeological finds all the time that's verifying so many of the characters that we have. Okay. We presented obscure characters in the Old Testament that are being uh, discovered as a writing found here and there. And that's the verifiable part of, of much of the Older Testament that we have. So history and archaeology, then, is proving the existence and, and the genuine uh, uh, content of what we consider to be the Old Testament. Yeah, I think that's right, uh, and many more each time. I mean, the historical value of the explorations in places like Israel and other parts of the Middle East, verifying you know the, the history of that land and the actions that are recorded in the Bible is a very valuable evidence that it is true. Okay, um, se- several things, but uh, folks, if you uh, would like to get in on the conversation, if you have a question or a comment, Feel free to give us a call at 866-985-4255, toll-free, 866-985-4ALL. We are live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central, and that means we're on right now. Christian Questions, a weekly habit that's good for you. Thanks for tuning us in every Sunday morning. Join our conversation any day and time at ChristianQuestions.com. All right. Now, we've been talking a little bit about the Apocrypha, and, and it's different in terms of its, its history and its origin uh, in relation to the Old Testament. What about the Septuagint? First of all, uh, you know, you hear that word, what the heck does Septuagint mean? What is the Septuagint, and then where does it fit in relation to um, Scripture? Jim, what, what, define what the Septuagint is. The Septuagint was a translation from the Hebrew into the Greek. We think it was Ptolemy II that uh, funded it on the part of the Jews in Alexandria. Okay, now, when would the Septuagint have been written? The first five books, the books of Moses, were the ones that were funded at that time, somewhere around maybe 280, 270 B.C. Okay. Now, the others were translated over a period of time, over the next couple or three centuries. Okay, so here's the interesting thing, because it seems like the apostles quote from the Septuagint. When you look at 
some of their quoting of the Old Testament, it seems to follow some of the wording of this Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was kind of like a, a Johnny-come-lately for the Old Testament, if you will, in terms of a writing. So does that make the Septuagint a viable translation that we should be looking at and reading of the Old Testament? That may be worthy of consideration, but consider that not always do the uh, writing, the quotes in the New Testament follow the Greek Septuagint. Okay. Sometimes they are according to the Hebrew, but we do the same thing in English. We know that the King James translation is imperfect, but usually we quote from it because of familiarity. And uh, when it's grossly inaccurate, then we uh, quote one of the more revised translations uh, corrected according to the manuscripts. Okay, Len? Uh, well, I think you have to realize that in that day, in Jesus' day, there was a great social intermix of people from various parts of the world. And you think about, for example, in Jerusalem, you know, under Roman rule, uh, we have three languages being spoken. Uh, we have certainly Hebrew being spoken, and we have uh, Latin being spoken. And so when they when when Pilate is going to communicate, for example, with Jesus, how do you think they spoke? What do you think language do you think they spoke? Well, I think we have a clue because remember Pilate put that sign up over Jesus' head in three different languages. Right. And one of those was Greek. And I think that was the common language if you were meeting another person from a culture. Uh, most of those people probably spoke Greek. And so I think it's common that we have the Septuagint in great use during that time because it's a language, a Greek language, that all those cultures would be able to understand. So the Septuagint then finds its value in having been written in the common language of the days of the New Testament. Is that where we're going with that? I think that's right. Okay, but it's not necessarily the most accurate translation of Old Testament writings. Jim, is that what you would say? Which is why there were other translations afterwards uh, to correct the errors of the Septuagint. Uh, can you give me some examples of that? Aquila uh, gave a very literal translation into the Greek. Uh, a little rough reading at times, but uh, nevertheless corrected according to the Hebrew text. And then there were the writings, the translations of Theodosian and Symmachus, which were looser translations to try to more or less get the idea across without the specific words. And afterwards, there were translations by Lucian and others. There's probably five, six, seven different translations, most of which have been lost over time uh, through lack of interest. <laughs> okay. All right, so so the Septuagint then has a place, but it's not it doesn't have the same authority from what I'm hearing the both of you say as the the Hebrew writings of Old Testament. I think that's right. Yeah, Rick, I think it's important. Uh, Jim's done an awful lot of work on various translations and accuracy. And uh, Jim, how many translations would you say there are there out now, like on the Old Testament and New Testament in the English language? Yeah. It's well over 100. Yeah. I've had a chance to compare somewhere between 70 and 80 for accuracy. Yeah, You've compared between 70 and 80 for accuracy. Right. Okay, see, now, there's a difference between Jim and myself right there. <laughs> 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 what he does is he compares 70 to 80 for accuracy, and I ask Jim. 
<laughs> well, that's your role on this program. <laughs> All right, folks, if you have a thought, it's 866-985-4255, toll-free, 866-985-4ALL. We are live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central, and that means we're on right now. Out from the dark ages and into the light of today, join us 24-7 at ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so we've got a little bit about the Septuagint, a little bit about the Apocrypha, a little bit about Old Testament writings. Let's, and really for the rest of the program now, we're going to focus on the New Testament, because that's where most of the controversy comes from, and that's what we really want to, to, to establish. Do we have what is supposed to be the real New Testament according to the Word and will of God, or are we missing out on several other books, or do we have books that we're reading that we shouldn't be reading because they're really not legitimate? How do we know? So to get started with that, let's just, we've only got about a minute and a half left in this particular segment. Who wrote the New Testament? Let's start, let's start with that question. The New Testament that we accept, who wrote that collection of, of books? Well, I'll give you a short answer. I think it was God. Well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't mean to be facetious with that, but I think it was obvious that uh, there were certain elements that had to be in there that were influenced by God. And we, we can talk more about that, but I think there's some keys in the scriptures that help us understand that. Okay, so what you're, you're saying then is, you, you're, you're telling me then that you believe that God is behind the writing of what we consider to be the New Testament. I think that's right, yes. Jim? Uh, I would accept that. Okay, just re- very quickly before the end of the segment. Jonathan, uh, let's go to Second Peter chapter 3, uh, but just read verses, I'm going to just drop in in the middle of a thought, verses 15 through 16. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And one of the the interesting things about that particular scripture is it's talking, it's the Apostle Peter writing and verifying the writings of the Apostle Paul in the same category as Old Testament scripture. So that gives us a sense of the authenticity of the writings and the letters of the Apostle Paul through the words of Peter. And as we go into this break, folks, that begins to open the door for the really, really important discussion of what about the New Testament and how do we know what's what. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guests, Lang Grice and Jim Parkinson, and our subject, So Where Does the Bible Come From? Coming up, how did the early church worship, and did it change after the apostles were off the scene? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guests Len Grice and Jim Parkinson. And our subject this morning, So Where Does the Bible Come From? To be a part of our program, call toll-free 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now and our website, ChristianQuestions.com. And don't forget to sign up for CQ Rewind, the full edition, at our website. 
It's a free service, and Jonathan, it's a really, really, really great, great tool. We've gotten some really wonderful feedback from listeners on how Seek to Rewind has really helped them to get the, 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 the truth of Scripture because it's on paper and you listen to the audio and you follow it along with the scriptures on paper, and it really, really makes sense, or in a PDF format anyway. So, uh, again, you can avail yourself of that opportunity at ChristianQuestions.com or through the Christian Questions app, Seeker Rewind, the full edition. You need to sign up for it, and it is a free service. All right, so I'm here with uh, Jim and Len at the uh, Johnstown, uh, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, at a Bible conference. We're talking about where the Bible came from, at the end of the last segment, the, the question that we sort of left hanging was, well, who wrote the New Testament? So, Jim, let's start with that. Who, who were the writers of the New Testament? The writers of all of the books of the New Testament were the apostles, with two exceptions, and that is Mark and Luke, who, of course, were with the apostles. Okay, so that's a pretty simple thing. And, you know, the amazing thing about all of this that really never ceases to amaze me is Jesus is the centerpiece of everything and didn't write a single word. He lived it, and it was recorded, and that's what we have to go work with. Yeah. Some say the only place where any recorded words of his are written, or any written words of his are recorded, is in the incident, remember, with the woman who came to him, they brought to him, accusing her of adultery, and he wrote in the sand. And even that one, I think Jim has concluded that may be a, a highly suspect passage, so... We don't really have any recorded words of Jesus. Yeah, I think in that case we have, uh, uh, I think the manuscript testimony is enough that there aren't any critical editions that include it. Okay, good. All right, and, and that's an important in, in information to start with. So let's talk a little bit about language, because, Len, you had mentioned earlier in one of the earlier segments that um, when Jesus was before Pilate, you, you put out a really important question. Well, what language did they speak because they understood each other? Now, Jesus would have been speaking normally. What, what language would he have been speaking, either one of you? Well, some people say Hebrew. Some people say Aramaic. But it's not a big difference. It's not. They're, it's like a difference in dialect. Uh, uh, you find that in the Hebrew, the definite article is at the beginning of the word, and in Aramaic, it's at the end of the word. And maybe to say the son of, uh, Hebrew will say Ben, and the Aramaic will say Bar. But basically, the difference between Hebrew and uh, Aramaic is about the difference between English and Brooklish. <laughs> okay. That's Brooklyn, in case you don't realize it. <laughs> okay. And I do understand those people, Jim. I live on the East Coast. <laughs> and I can even speak that language. <laughs> so, so really, then, you've got the Hebrew and Aramaic, you're saying, are, are, are like cousins in terms of a language. That's right. Greek, though, is very different. That's right. Now, so we have the New Testament written in Greek. Is that correct? Uh, we do currently, although the first book that was written appears to be the Gospel according to Matthew. Papias, in the early 2nd century, says it was written in Hebrew. And I think in the first chapter you already have evidence of it. Uh, Matthew is showing that Jesus is the son of David. And uh, in numbering the names, they take the number of the letter and add them together. So David is... Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, that's the fourth letter. He, Vav, is the sixth letter, and 
uh, the dollars again, DVD, adds up to 14. It won't work in the Greek. Okay, so go ahead. Just I translate say, yeah. that, will you? Yeah, <laughs> these are the amazing things I always encounter when I talk with Jim. That's why I love to do that. Uh, I, the, uh, the interesting thing we have in something like that is uh, when you look at those who wrote, for example, we mentioned Luke. Luke uh, was was not Hebrew. Luke was Greek. And so did he write a gospel in Hebrew, or did he write a gospel in Greek? Which would you say, Jim? Oh, I think all of the other gospels were written first in Greek. Yeah. Uh, I'll suggest the most reasonable scenario is Matthew wrote in Hebrew for those who were in and around Jerusalem. And then uh, Mark says, well, now I've been going out with uh, Paul and others to these various Greek-speaking churches, and we need this in uh, Greek. So he presents an abridged edition. Rick, let me just interrupt there for a minute, because Jim raises a point that's, uh, I think, important difference in how we're looking at this versus what you get some so-called scholars that's saying, Mark was written first. At one time, I thought Mark was the first gospel, because that's kind of the popular opinion. But I think in some of the research, especially that Jim had done in some of the gospels and some of the manuscripts, it seems evident that the, the order we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the correct order chronologically of how they were written. Okay, and, and you would both say that Greek was the common language of the day? Uh, throughout the empire. Right. So... A lot of those who spoke Hebrew would have spoken Greek as well. Is that really where we're, what we're coming right. down to? And I think that's an important distinction to make because we look at it as two very, very different things, but in fact, yeah. there's a lot of overlap. Rick, my, my grandfather lived in Poland uh, before World War One, and you know they lived in Krakow, which is kind of in the middle of Poland, but it's not or south of Poland. Yeah, uh, but. What did they speak? He spoke not just Polish, but he also spoke Russian because they were under kind of Russian domination. And that was the common language. If you're going to speak with the government, you spoke Russian. And they were fluent in that. So I think it was no different in those days. They were under this Roman domination. Uh, They didn't speak Latin. There's no evidence that they would have communicated in Latin because that would have been submission to the Roman rule, which, as you know, was really uh, not popular that day, but Greek would have been acceptable because there were many, uh, there were many Jews that lived outside of Israel that would have spoken Greek as well. So, so a very common occurrence, and, and that's the thing that I think is important to establish that because Greek was the common language to write in Greek wasn't anything uh, extraordinary. It was it, what was expected. Um, Jonathan, let us go to uh, let's go to the phones for a moment here. Let's go to uh, David from Indiana, line two. Good morning, David, and welcome to Christian Questions. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, the, the question I was calling on was, how do you know that these are the words of God? I think a fundamental issue is the, the baptism uh, in the receiving of the help or the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that, that is fundamental and steps out on, on belief and to receive God's gift. This is... Uh, this is crucial for the Christian believer to be baptized, and at an age where he understands uh, the meaning of baptism. You know, not not out of the womb, where you know you don't even know what's going on, but it's the decision to be made. It's you know, obedience to God's word. 
that's where you receive the help, and that that's just so fundamental. All right, so David, really, what you're saying is that uh, you know the doctrine of baptism that is is brought out in the New Testament. Uh, is one of those things that you, you look at as a, a very basis of Christianity, and these are the writings that support that, and, and I think that's the connection you're making. Am, am I on the right track? Yes, sir. Okay, well, appreciate your thought very much, David. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. So, let's look at how... Well, actually, before I go, go there, Len, you, you mentioned you wanted to read a scripture from Luke to sort of set the groundwork for where the New Testament came from, and why we look at the books that we have as being the right books. And really, folks, just so you know, I'm going to tell you now, because we're almost out of time for the first hour, if, if we're not on in your area for the second hour, please go to ChristianQuestions.com, click Listen Live, or, or stay on it with your app. Stay with us for the second hour, because one name we haven't mentioned in, this, in, in talking about the scriptures and where they came from is Constantine. And in history, a lot, of, a lot of Christianity looks back to the era of Constantine in the 300 A.D. era and says that, well, he was the one responsible for gathering the people together, for putting the Bible together. Is that true? We'll wait for the second hour to answer that. So, folks, please stay with us for that. But, Len, let's go back to uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Yeah, I, I think this is a much overlooked passage, but very... Uh instrumental in helping us understand this question. Luke 1, 1 1-4 reads, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, those words are the key, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account, not just two or three, many. And Luke says then that he wants to write this because uh, at the end he says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke is adding his stamp that I am going to be honest and use integrity in writing this, and you will know exactly what's there, because many have tried to do this, and I want to clarify that. So fact. who's Luke? How, who is Luke that he can do that? Well, Luke was, uh, was noted as the great physician, and it's, uh, he wrote not just this gospel, but he also wrote the book of Acts, and he was an accompaniment to the apostles in those days, and it's particularly... Uh, his activity with the apostles was very instrumental in his being able to get a first-hand account. So he got what he wrote because he was with the apostles. I think that's right, right, Jim? You would agree with that? Right. Yeah. Okay, so so we have that, and, and that is important, because what that indicates, the, the Luke verse, is that there was a lot of clamor going on around the establishment of Christianity, and Luke is taking it upon himself to say, look, we've got to put this in order and sort of uh, uh, weed out all of the extraneous writings that are happening. Yeah, and he says these were handed down by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants. And that's a pretty good verification. Eyewitnesses. You don't get too much right. better than that. So, Jim, a, a thought on that? I think that's right. And the, the thought has been suggested also, worthy of consideration, that it takes you down almost to the end of Paul's life, and so it may have been written by Luke as a legal defense brief for him. How, how, what do you mean? Because that's, that's an interesting thing that I don't think most of us have ever heard of. A legal defense, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke? Acts. Oh, oh, Acts. Yeah, yeah Luke okay. and Acts. Written as a legal defense brief for the Apostle Paul? How, how so? Oh, he was going to be sentenced to death, you know. He was tried twice. 
the first time he was let loose, and the second time he wasn't. So they were written to verify the his activities then? That's right. Okay. Yeah, he says, Luke goes on in that passage, say, I've investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Well, what do, why do you investigate? To support something, and if he's supporting Paul and the legal defense of why Paul is going, that makes sense that he's saying he's investigating for that purpose. You know, and the interesting thing about Luke is because he was a doctor, he would have understood the depth and necessity of real proper uh, investigation and, and, and study to make sure things were absolutely right. So that gives us a sense of how the the, the, the New Testament or, or what we should look for in terms of the New Testament. And Len, just very quickly, you, you mentioned we've got less than a minute left for this 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 hour. You mentioned there's three things that you, you look at in terms of finding authenticity uh, in Scripture. What, what are those three things very quickly here? Uh, well, I think there's several phases, but I think the, the three I would mention that we can build up to later, if you want, written by an apostolic figure. Okay. Not necessarily an apostle, but an apostolic figure. Second, citations in history by early leaders in okay. the church. And third, the consensus of the churches. Is this right or not right? So it wasn't the act of the church that gave them their status. So it was decisions and saying these things have intrinsic authority and the, the power of these writings from those we know. And I think those were the three basic criteria that they used. And we're going to come back to those uh, in the second hour. So, folks, as we wrap up this hour, we're talking about a really, really important subject. Where does the Bible come from, and how do we know we have the right material in the book that we call the Bible? In the second hour, we're going to focus on putting the New Testament together according to the ancient way of putting it together, and we're going to see how God's hand really was in the origination of what we call Scripture text, especially in the New Testament. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we'll be back after the news and all that. If we're not on in your area, go to ChristianQuestions.com, click Listen Live and stay with us. How did we get the Bible? We'll be back after the news, but till then, think about it. is Christian Questions. Winston Churchill once said that the truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it, ignorance may deride it, but in the end, there it is. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Christian Questions Talk Radio with your breakfast with Jonathan and Rick. This isn't your typical Christian commentary. We love talking with our audience, and we promise never talk at you like so many talk shows do today. This is a conversation about biblical topics as we look at them from a different perspective. And Jonathan, we've got a really important basic subject on the table this morning. We really do, Rick. Our question this morning is, so where does the Bible come from? And our theme text is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness. 
And uh, with me here, uh, I am in, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania at a Bible conference. I have Jim Parkinson and Len Grice as guests uh, with us this morning on the, on the program, uh, both of which have done a lot of study on the origin of Scripture and how do we know that we have the right Scriptures for studying. You know, that theme Scripture, Len, that we just read, every Scripture inspired by God is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and instruction, which is in righteousness, if you're not studying the right thing, you're not going to get the right result. Right. So how do we know that we're studying the right kinds of things? In the first hour, we spent quite a bit of time looking at the, the establishment of the Old Testament, which is not nearly as uh, difficult to figure out as the establishment of the New Testament. We touched on the Apocrypha. Uh, we touched on the languages of the New Testament, the fact that many were bilingual, for, for lack of a, a, a better explanation. They, the, the, the Jewish people spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, which are very, very similar, only separated by dialect, but many times wrote in Greek. So the large part of the New Testament originally was written in Greek because it was the common and acceptable language of the day. So, Len, let's get started. There, there's a couple of things. I don't know which you want to start with, so you, you tell me. Let's right. get started establishing the New Testament and why we think it's the right New Testament. Okay. And maybe the best place to start is to say, do we know how the uh, early church worshipped? Do we know what they did in their meetings? And we have a, some pretty good historical writings. One of them is from uh, one that everyone rec- at least recognizes, the name Justin Martyr. He wrote around 150 A.D., and he, uh, in his uh, writings, I, I want to quote something from his writings on how right. they worship. Okay. It says, On the day called the Day of the Sun, uh, all who lived in cities or in the country gathered together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then all rise together and pray. Now, that's a pretty interesting uh, commentary on how they how they worshipped. Uh, let's key in on one thing that they mention here. He says, the memoirs of the apostles. Uh, and obviously they were then, at that time, remember at this point, Really, the church is the early church is almost all Jewish at this right, point. Right, right. So they are putting at this point, starting to put the memoirs of the apostles, which I think are the gospels that they're talking about, uh, were considered as important as the writings of the prophets of the old te- of the older testament. Right. So at that point, they're starting to integrate these two together, and when you think about the word canon, which we use for scripture. Right, the canon of Scripture. Yeah. Interesting, I believe, that canon, uh, that word is derived from, actually from a Hebrew word. Uh, it's used in Ezekiel, the 40th chapter, verse 5. Uh, it's the Hebrew word K-A-N-E-H, kana. And it would be uh, a measuring reed. It was used in Ezekiel as a reed to measure. And we have that in the vision of the temple, that reed. Like a yardstick, kind yeah, of. Yeah, like a okay. yardstick. Okay. And so it was first applied, actually, to the biblical writings. Uh, wasn't applied till the fourth century. That was not a term that was used earlier, probably than the fourth century. But it talks about how these various writings then, and the collection of writings. How how did they get accepted? What made them say that these were 
of the memoirs of the apostles were as important as the prophets. And the various authorities that were there at the time, he talks about the president of the congregation. They didn't have a minister, paid ministry, obviously. Whoever was leading that congregation at the time uh, was commenting on these things and reading these things. And so they got to be officially accepted as authoritative. Things that you should be right. reading. And when I say the church has accepted them, when I mention those three things, the churches I'm talking about are not the churches we have today, the Lutheran Church, Catholic Church, those there. I'm talking about those congregations described in the New Testament, the seven churches, for example, that are mentioned, and other churches like Corinth and those that are mentioned. Those early churches that had contact with the apostles, you know, they were the ones that, that kind of accepted them. And so you have this interplay between historical and the theological elements coming together. And I think you can divide, kind of divide it into three separate phases. Okay, phases of establishing what is... Scripture. Scripture. Yeah, and when okay. I say Scripture, I'm talking about that's the idea of canon Scripture. Okay. Those things that should be... Part. Things that should be measured as... Right, as true. As, as truth right. to base your Christian belief upon. Right. And, and this is an important, an important uh, exercise now that we're going to begin to go through, is finding out how do we find those things that you absolutely can positively measure. And again, you quoted from, what was it, 150 A.D., right. which is long before Constantine existed. And so we see evidence then already in the writings of early Christians that there were things that were canonized, if you will, way, 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 way before the era of Constantine. Uh, Jim, anything you want to add to that before we get to those three phases? Our earliest Greek manuscript of the New Testament is in the John Rylands Library in Manchester, England, uh, dating from around uh, oh, 130 A.D. approximately, which is less than half a century after it was first penned. Wow, okay. So we have other substantial portions of the New Testament from closer to 200 A.D., early 3rd century. Okay. Go into more detail on those later. I know you can. <laughs> um, all right. Before we get into those to those three phases, Len, we do have a call uh, on the line, and we missed that call in the in the first hour. So, Jonathan, let's go to the phones. All right. We have Julius from Connecticut. Good morning, Julius, and welcome to Christian Questions. Gentlemen, good morning, uh, Len, Jim. Uh, God bless you for your uh, your research. A lot of hours of sacrifice and dedication. Thank you. Uh, uh, confirmation, biblical confirmation, uh, to me, is so simple. Uh, does the Red Sea exist? The, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, oh, the Holocaust was a myth, you know, you remember that. Now, basically, uh, folks, we're talking about the history of a people, the Jewish nation. It's, it's a history. And, uh, you know, it, it's so, uh, so simple to me. But here, here's a perspective. Here's a perspective. With, with all the research, with all the intellectuality, the perspective is that God's Word was written for the sincere, for the humble to understand. Uh, Jonathan Rick, for years you put up with a cynical person on your program. I think you remember. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, you know what, I used to love the guy. <laughs> you know what a cynic is? A cynic is yep. not only skeptical, he is insincere. There's no sincerity in him. 
So, uh, having said that, uh, look at the apostles. Uh, the Lord chose, uh, Jehovah God and the Lord Jesus chose. I'll make it brief, Rick. <laughs> I know you have a lot to cover. Uh, look, look at those fishermen. He didn't come to the Pharisees. He came to the fishermen to reveal uh, the, the, the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, and finally, uh, remember, the, the, the intellectual of, the, of that day was the, the great Apostle Paul. And yet, to the elite of the Greeks in uh, Acts chapter 17, they call him a babbler. He didn't know what he was talking about. So uh, that's, that's my perspective. Thank you. God bless. Appreciate your call. Thank you, Julius. You know, and, and Julius brought out a really important point, that the, the, the gospel, the, the truth that we know to be Scripture, came through the hands and the minds and the lives of very humble individuals. They were not highly exalted in their time, and there's something beautiful about that, because God's spirit, God's power, God's influence can work through that individual to do mighty works. But the individual can't take credit, because they just it's, it's beyond them. So, Julius, thanks so much for the call. We really appreciate it. Um, okay, so Len, let's go through those three phases that you're talking about, and let's look at the New Testament, and how do we know that the books that we have qualify? Okay. We can divide up the scripture development, I think, into three phases. Phase one is really from the, the, the latter part of the first century, A.D., and Jim mentioned some of those writings that were there, but uh, that's when these books are being written. Phase two, I think, goes about to the middle of the second century, and then phase three from about 190 A.D. to about 400 A.D. That's when we find the formulation of what we have today as the New Testament. And phase one was really the creation of the documents. Okay. Okay, that's where we start. So the first rule, if you will then, is that it had to have been written at that time. Right, and emanating from the apostles or those who had some direct or indirect relation to them. Okay. And those writers, I think, I think personally, they had envisioned that they were supposed to be preparing something that would be useful for not just the believers in their day, but the believers all down through the period of time that would be read afterwards. And I think that's why when we read earlier that passage in Second Peter, uh, the third chapter, where he's defending Paul's writings. Right. And he says, you know, there are difficult things in his letters which ignorant and unstable people explain falsely. Right. You know, he's defending Paul, as, as, as Jim said, you know, in that defense of Paul that Luke makes. I think that's kind of the, the interplay we see going on in this first uh, phase of it, where these writings, what is going to be authoritative, is going to be established and created. And so that was a very important part as we create these documents, which ones were there. And some of those I read, you know, we don't find them really circulating at this point, although Luke says there are a lot of things being written. So you can imagine, Rick, in our day when you had things like events happening or someone comes along. Look at, for example, President Kennedy and all the records we have about the conspiracies behind the right. I lived through that. And, you know, so you say, uh, what's right and what's not right? And conspiracy theories, why was that time any different than our day? You had all these writings gone. So I think that was a very key part, that phase one of, of making sure it was the apostles or someone that had either a direct or indirect relationship with the apostles. I think that was one of the tests 
that the early churches put on these things. All right, so 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 Jim, as we as we look at that as a as a qualification, um, what are you, your thoughts on the importance of that? Is 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 Len saying you know is Len putting too high a value on that, or is there a a real necessity to keep it that narrow? I don't think it's a question of necessity to keep it that narrow. If we want to refer to the other writings, how many manuscripts do we have? For example, it wasn't that many years ago that the Gospel of Judas was discovered in a manuscript. It was the second manuscript that had been discovered. Uh, of the Gospel of, of Judas. Of the Gospel according to Judas. And that, that created a real stir. It did, at least in the media. <laughs> yeah. uh, not, certainly not much in the scholarly world, because make a comparison. Uh, I think it was Peter Parsons, papyrologist in Oxford, England. What, what's a what's a papyrologist? Uh, oh, fellow who studies papyri or papyrus manuscripts. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, the Greek New Testament is the second best attested work of ancient history. I thought that was pretty good, and which led to the next question: of What's the best attested? And he's, well, the Hebrew Old Testament, of course. <laughs> So, so by saying it's the best attested work of ancient history, put put the numbers okay. to that. Yes, for each of the four Gospels, we have over a thousand manuscripts. Compare that with two manuscripts for the uh, Gospel according to Judas, one, two, or three Gospel according to Peter. There's just no comparison as to how well the early Church preserved the four Gospels that we have. And okay. I'm going to ask you to hold your thought, Jim, because we're out of time for this segment. I didn't. I wasn't even watching the clock. We're already several minutes over. So, folks, as we go into this break, we're working on establishing why for the New Testament. In the next segment, Constantine is going to come into play. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guests, Len Grice and Jim Parkinson. And we're talking about, so where does the Bible come from? Coming up, when did the canon of Scripture really take hold? What about Constantine? What was his influence? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick, with our special guests Len Grice and Jim Parkinson, and we're talking about, so where does the Bible come from? To be a part of our program, call toll-free. 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. And don't forget, if you have a smartphone, get our free app. Go to your app store and type in Christian Questions because you can message us on your smartphone during the program and we will try to share your comment on air. All right, Jonathan, thank you for that. And I am sitting here in, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh, with uh, Len Grice and Jim Parkinson. We're discussing the origin of Scripture and why we believe that we have the right New Testament. And, Len, in the last segment, you had started out by saying there were three phases of the development of the New Testament, the latter part of the first century where these things were written, the middle part of the second century, up to the middle part of the second century is the second phase, and the third century is from 
latter part of the second century to about 400 A.D. So let, let's go back. We, we've discussed the time in which things were written. Jim, I kind of cut you off at the end of the last segment because we were out of time. But you were talking about the number of, of manuscripts and so forth that really give us a lot of heavy proof toward the New Testament being the New Testament. Uh, yes, so we could mention, for example, that uh, take the comparison of the writings of the classical authors with the preservation of the New Testament manuscripts. So a comparison, okay. That uh, for most of the classical authors, you have one, maybe if you're re- uh, lucky, you have two, and the holes in them don't align so that you put the most of it together. Give me an example of classical authors that you're talking about. Um well, let's take the most abundant, and that's uh, the writings of uh, Homer, okay. the Odyssey and the Iliad. And you have between, I think it's 120 and 130 manuscripts of them. Compare that with every book of the New Testament is attested by more than that. The Gospels by over a thousand manuscripts each. Acts and the Epistles, 500. Or even Revelation has 200 or so. And uh, so you compare that with the classical authors or anything else, and it's just far more voluminous for those books and those books only, not for the other books of the New Testament Apocrypha that have been suggested. Or any of those other missing books of the New Testament either. Right. In many cases, you find a manuscript or two, and people get all you know bent out of shape, like, wow, this is going to change everything. But when you're looking at a volume of proof that's immensely on the side of what's already been established. Okay, did Constantine do it? Did Constantine, was he the one to pull the people together to say, this is the New Testament? We want to go to a soundbite, uh, again, from a documentary about Constantine, about the, 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 the area, about 325 A.D. So, so Fred, let's go to that soundbite now, and then we're going to get into a discussion of what happened then and before that time. Constantine wanted to harness this new religion in order to unify a Roman Empire that was falling apart. At that time, Christianity was a loosely organized religion, a collection of churches with diverse beliefs and diverse scriptures. The emperor intended to change that. In 325 AD, Emperor Constantine convenes the Council of Nicaea to decide the basic tenets of Christianity. He brings together the most powerful church leaders from around the world to discuss legalizing a formal Christian religion. One of the interesting things is, it becomes clear that what he is primarily interested is in unity. He wants the Christian religion to provide the ideological basis for the empire. Okay, so, again, very dramatic, and they're saying some things there that, that, that Christianity up to that point was a lot of uh, loosely organized churches, and the interesting thing about the churches is that, is that church back then didn't mean what church means now. Church, just just quickly, Glenn. Well, church, the church, church then, just, I mean, the word church really meant just the congregation, right. and there was a great independence. From them, obviously, from the writings we have, they were free to accept someone's service or not accept it. Uh, there was no central authority. Right. That was the difference when Constantine came in. He wanted to, to implement a central authority. Okay. That's when all the problems started. 
And I think that's an interesting thought to, to, to put on the table is that's when the problems started. Christianity was growing along in a very small, independent way, just fine. And I think that's the way Jesus intended it to be. That's subject for another day. Um, but they talked about, in, in the soundbite, talked about having, you know, diverse scriptures. Let's take a look at the period before Constantine and just see if we can determine if the scriptures were, in fact, as diverse as they're sort of implying. So let, let, let's go to something called the, the Muratorian Fragment. What is that? Well, the, the Muratorian Fragment came along as kind of the second century ends. Uh, and that phase two, I talked about phase one, phase two was kind of this first attempt at, to define what should be included in Scripture. And a man named Marcion came along, and in the mid-kind of second century, uh, he was a Gnostic. And we know what the Gnostics were. Those were the Greeks that kind of came into, the, into Christianity because it became a very uh, great platform for them to sort of espouse their beliefs that came in when Alexandria kind of collapsed. And so they were able to come in and spread all kinds of different beliefs because the church was just being formed. There wasn't really an authority that said, this is, okay, this is it. Uh, and that's when you sort of see the rejection coming in this period of time of the Hebrew scriptures. That's when you start to see the questions of anti-Semitism come in. And anything to do with Second Jewish century. scripture. Okay. At the end of the second end century. Of the second century. Okay. Uh, because that's when the Gnostics start to permeate through the church. And he accepted only the writings of Paul and all but the first two chapters of Luke, which was about the birth of Jesus, because they wanted to kind of push that aside. Well, he was declared a heretic eventually. But at that time, then, as the second century ends, we start to see writings come to say, what is, what should we be following? And the Muratorian Fragment came up as a result of that. Uh, let me just read one piece of that, and then I think Jim has done a, a pretty extensive study on this Muratorian Fragment. But here, the Muratorian Fragment, around 170 A.D., it lists all the New Testament books, except for Matthew, Mark, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, and Third John. And it says, the third book of the Gospel, according to Luke, then it's torn. The fourth gospel is by John, one of the disciples, and then another tear. The Acts of the Apostles having been written in one book, addressing the most excellent Theophilus, Luke includes one by one the things done, verifying that Luke. And then uh, there's a tear, and then it says, It is necessary for us to give an argued account of all these, since the blessed Apostle Paul himself, there's a missing piece, writes to seven churches in the following order. First to the Corinthians, second to the Ephesians, third to the Philippians, fourth to the Colossians, fifth to the Galatians, sixth to the Thessalonians, seventh to the Romans. John also writes to seven churches in the Apocalypse, to Philemon, one to Titus, and two to Timothy, in love and affection. But the letter of Jude and the two superscribed with the name of John and then it's missing. So maybe Jim can comment on that, but that's the first kind of documented thing of what should be included. And that's, study oh, you said about 170 that, A.D.? About 170 A.D., that's when it was being circulated. I think uh, maybe, Jim, is that about what you would say, Jim, for that? 
I'm not an expert on it, but uh, that seems to be about the right uh, era. And we have manuscripts, uh, sizable manuscripts, from as early as 200 A.D. and uh, early 3rd century. Would you like to me to say something about those? Yeah, yeah before, before you get to those, though, a, a little bit more about the significance of a writing like this at the time it was written. What does that, 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 that tell us? Because it, it sounds like there's a, a sense of making sure we all have the, the, the same basis to work from. Is that, that's what I'm hearing. Is, am I on the right track with that? I think that's right. Okay. Yeah, that piece says uh, in here, Matthew and Mark were missing, as we said here, but that thing was torn, uh, so we don't really know uh, what's missing in that tear, but he does re- refer a third gospel a third book of the gospel just doesn't mention it, so uh, it, it's going to be one of those two, certainly. And he also says in that fragment, it says other books, uh, but he says clearly they were not received. So that's what I say, this phase, second century, those early churches played an important role in sorting out what was really from the apostles or those that should be, have been directed by the apostles and what was not when he says they were not received. And maybe, you know, and of course this is pure conjecture on the part of somebody who knows nothing about any of this, so you can throw it out if you'd like. But, but um, you know, you, you wonder if the fact that these other things were not received is why you have very few of them coming up later on, and you have only one or two manuscripts versus several hundred for the other books of the New Testament. Because they were looked at, as, as sort of rogue writings, they didn't belong with the sacred writings of Scripture, and so their their popularity waned. So, so Jim, and they, you didn't tell me that was wrong, so I'll say that maybe I've been on the right track. That's good. <laughs> Folks, if you have a thought, if you'd like to uh, contribute to our program, if you have a question, uh, we'd love to hear from you at 866-985-4255, toll-free, 866 866- 9854-ALL. We are live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central, and that means we're on right now. The conversation continues online at ChristianQuestions.com. Contact us there with your questions or comments. Also, interact with us on our Facebook and tweet us at CQNetRadio. Thank you, Jonathan. So, so, so Jim, talk a little bit more. You, you, we, you put the Muratorian fragments there. That's important. You said there were other things that, that kind of back that up. I, yes, I would say so, that it was in the 1930s that the Chester Beatty papyri were discovered, uh, three, three of them. And international terms, they are called P45, P46, P47. Oh, I knew that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you see it in the critical editions that way. The P45, or Chester Beatty number one, contains pieces of all four Gospels and Acts. Therefore, there was no room for any fifth gospel. So. Okay, that, that, that's interesting. Let me just pause there, because that's an important way to look at things. They were put in an order chronologically. So if you have four gospels and then acts, and there's, there's no space in between, it's a complete picture, is what you're saying. It appears to be that way. Okay, yeah. good. Go ahead. And then the Chester Beatty papyri number two, papyrus number two, is most of the epistles of Paul, there are some leaves missing. Uh, also, uh, it has a little bit different order. Romans, Hebrews, First and Second Corinthians, and so forth. I've had a chance to hold in my hot little hands this uh, fragment going from Romans to Hebrews directly. 
And uh, this was from around 200 A.D. So already at that time, they understood that Hebrews was written by Paul. Now, now why, how, how is it that you make that connection? Because it, uh, Hebrews is between Romans and First and Second Corinthians. So they're, they're putting together the writings of the same author. That's right. And so if you've got Hebrews in the middle, then it, it, it follows, you've got Paul before and Paul after, because the writing of the book of Hebrews is, is a subject of de- debate today. But you're saying that helps to really understand what the authorship was. Well, yes, they already understood that around 200 A.D. It just took scholars an additional 16 centuries to become ignorant of it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, uh, again, what you're saying is that early writings put things in order, and this is all long before Constantine came on on the scene, and we have Scripture establishing itself from the, from the groundwork of the early church itself to those that were following right after, and what we have today is what they were talking about, not necessarily what Constantine had to say. So as we go into this break, the question then remains, though, well, then did Constantine do a good work, or did he cause trouble within the Christian community? This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guests Len Grice and Jim Parkinson, and we're talking about, so where does the Bible come from? Coming up, what does it all mean? Are we sure God sanctioned everything as is? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick, and we have special guests Len Grice and Jim Parkinson, and our discussion is about, so where does the Bible come from? To be a part of our program, call toll-free 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. And don't forget to go to that website and sign up for CQ Rewind, the full edition. You receive a document of the program. There's graphics. There's illustrations. It's a Bible study per topic, and it really brings out everything that we're talking about. Again, that's CQ Rewind, the full edition. And it's available at ChristianQuestions.com or from your Christian Questions app on your smartphone and it really is a, a great a great tool uh, for Bible study. So, so as we as we bring in our last segment here, uh, Jim and uh, Len, we only have just a, really a few minutes. Um, Jonathan, I want to start this segment just with one scripture from page six, First Thessalonians chapter two. Just read verse thirteen. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that you received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men but from what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And really, that's the core of the reason for having this conversation, receiving the Word of God unadulterated so we can get the Word of God. And how did that happen throughout history? We've talked about a lot of things. We're going to be getting into the period of Constantine for a few minutes here, uh, but we do have someone on the line, I believe. So, Jonathan, let's go to the phones, and then we'll get to back to Constantine. All right. Well, we have Bob from New Jersey. Good morning, Bob, and welcome to Christian Questions. Uh, good morning. 
Bob, we're having trouble Bob. hearing you. Yeah, Jonathan. Uh, I, I think we lost him. I think we lost him. Yeah. Okay. All right. I don't know, Bob. If you can, if you can hear us, you can uh, try to call back because um, we couldn't hear you there. Okay. Let's start with Constantine. When you look at the era of Constantine, do you look at that and, do, and what his, his influence on Christianity, and do you say yay or you say oh man, what a mess? What, what, what's your reaction? Well, I you know there's good and bad in Constantine. I think he did a work that was necessary. And I think in the end result, uh, what we have in Scripture today is correct. So to the extent he did that, it's good. But he had some some bad influences, too, that maybe Jim can talk about. Uh, the heathen priesthood was uh, certainly oppressing the Christians. And so Constantine didn't release the Christians from persecution, at least officially. However, practicing Christians were still oppressed, but this time by other Christians. Okay, so we're going to start with 313 A.D. What happened at that point in time, and then walk through a little bit of the history of Constantine's influence and what ended up being the, the church, what the, what the church ended up looking like after versus what the church looked like before. Well, in 313, we already see Arius pleading for a restoration of primitive purity into an Alexandrian church gone worldly. Well, you know, you can't fight back if you're part of the worldly group, uh, immoral people. You can't accuse a man of being too pious. That's not going to fly. <laughs> it took about five more years, and Athanasius accuses Arius of uh, heresy. You know, that will always work. That's worked even in the 20th and 21st centuries. So... In time, they simply poisoned Arius to death, called it the righteous judgment of God, and that institutionalized immorality into the professing Christian church. Okay, that's a mouthful. <laughs> because, well, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, okay. Hold on to your thoughts. Right. That institutionalized immorality into the professing Christian church. That's a very strong statement. And so let, let's, let's work well, on that. You can... All right, let Jim explain what he means, because I'm interested, too. Okay, the misbehaviors were distracted, uh, the attention was distracted away from the misbehaviors of them by accusing the other of him of um, heresy. And that way you concentrate on his salvation by knowledge, the knowledge of whatever is defined as truth, and uh, never mind what is according to Scripture but as defined according to this council or whatever. And as a consequence, so with people's attention away from immorality, it could propagate. So you're, 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 it's, a, it's a diversionary tactic is what you're saying. Exactly. And you're getting away from that, that purity of what Scripture actually is supposed to stand for and supposed to teach us. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Len. I think during that early, that, that period of time and up to the, kind of the closing of what I would call the canon in 367, at this time when Athanasius writes a letter, uh, his 39th Paschal letter, he writes that lists all 27 books of the New Testament. And so Athanasius was not the great guy. I mean, he was fighting the Gnostics, and, but he also had some issues like with Arius and that. But at least we have that from him, and that letter 
we do have all 27 books of the present New Testament listed. Now, that is after, you know, Constantine had gotten everyone together, but the point was that it was to define those revelations that were claimed by Gnosticism coming in and the differentiated writings that were going around by some of the church historians like Eusebius and some of the others. And we do, at least from that point on, get a definition. These were the ones that would be verified. And I think after 313, right, we had a lot of problems start issuing into the church. And then we had, if you go into the early 5th century and 405, we have the first kind of papal declaration that this is the authority. But, you know, then things start to get lost, as Jim says. The, the focus is away from what the scriptures are about, and that's Jesus and the activities, right. to what should we believe and how should the church be organized. Well, the early church was never organized. Outside of it, their yeah. own little congregation. Right. They had an organization within those oh. congregations. All right, so so let's just, because this is about the, the, the canon of Scripture, the, the, uh, the, the measuring stick of what is truly Scripture, to, to try to summarize the era of Constantine, before we get to the errors of Constantine, let's summarize the era. Um, you have, in that time frame, not a proclamation of what is Scripture, necessarily, but a confirmation of what is Scripture, because that had already been established. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, the Church did not develop the canon of Scripture. Okay, and, th- and that's really what I'm, what I'm trying to get to. Right. Go ahead. Uh, God, I think, as I said at the beginning, God did that by inspiring the writings that we have in the New Testament, and then, actually, as Jim says, preserving these manuscripts huge numbers of manuscripts being preserved uh, for each of those books we have, where those that were not part of the canon scripture, we, we don't have nearly as much of a record. And I think that's the experience and the discussions that were going on were overruled, I believe, by God. And he uses all means at some time. It doesn't have to be perfect means to make sure that these things are going to be preserved for our day. So, and that's another important point, because you have the preservation, then, of what had been established long before that time frame, of, of the, the books and the writings that would be considered sacred. They were established long before, but God allowed, for lack of a better way to say it, uh, a, a, a corrupted uh, organization to take and do the work of preserving it. This it, 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 that doesn't sound like the way God would normally work. And how how could that be? Well, fortunately, we have the manuscripts that testify what it was like in the early church. Uh, our earliest portion of the Textus Receptus type text, from which the King James was translated, goes back to the fifth century. But we have roughly a hundred manuscripts as early or earlier, actually. Uh, hundred that are re- really earlier than that. And that's reflected in the critical editions of the Greek New Testament. And uh, most of those critical editions are pretty good. They, uh, none is perfect, but very close. And there's only a few texts like 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 2, or Revelation 20, verse 5, where a little bit more work needs to be done. <laughs> Rick, I think the consistency of the Gospels that we have, mm-hmm. that's an important element in 
and understanding why they were preserved, because there's lights and shadows in there as we read them, and we have some differences, you know, very minor differences in my opinion, but they all identify the same person. Uh, the Gospels make Jesus a unique figure, every one of them, and nowhere else do writers ever convey the same impression of something like they do there. And the verifies anyone can read those Gospels and understand them. You don't have to be a scholar. We've been discussing, you know, the credibility, but when you read them, as I think as Julius called in, uh, you have a credibility established on the fact that you don't have to have a 10-year degree in order to understand what's in those Gospels. I'm glad for that. <laughs> They're written within 100 years of the actual events, and that's what's important. If you read, I studied Latin for four years, and I didn't want to be a priest or a doctor. Uh, but anyways, uh, it was useful. We read the Aeneid, and you know that's written within 100 years of the Gospels, but you can't understand it today because you don't understand the culture. It's not true with the New Testament. And that's an interesting point. So, so really, if we're, we're to sum this up, we've got about two minutes left, two to three minutes left here. Um, you, you look at, at the, the Scriptures, and the purpose, the scriptures. You know, let's focus just on the New Testament at this point. It, to, to, to reiterate, tell, tell me the purpose of the New Testament. Well, I think the purpose of the New Testament really is uh, to help us understand one person, and that's Jesus and the role he played. Okay, so the purpose is to understand Jesus and the role he played. Jim, you want to add to that? Yeah, just repeating the second uh, Timothy 3.16... And I'll add the 17th verse to it. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. That's saying, with the scripture, you've got the training and you've got the tools. So the scriptures then are about the individual Christian following after Christ. What happened after Constantine is the, the focus on the individual Christian went away, and the focus on organization became the big thing. And it took the very purpose of Scripture out of the way. It, it, it removed it, and you ended up having people then, essentially, for years and years and years, blindly following an organization which was put in place for political gain. Right. And until we had the wide publication of the Bible as we have it today, which came much, much later, uh, we didn't understand that. We were a victim of that church organization to a large degree to tell us what we should believe and how we should act. And the scriptures essentially initially were written to this what, what people look at as a fragmented church, but what we understand by looking at the way the organization of the original church was, was a glorious church because you had individuals that would come together and they would be able to participate and learn and grow as individuals in Christ becoming part of a body. Right. Jim, go ahead. If our connection is with the organization in heaven, then it's not obvious that there's an organization down on earth. And the kind of organization within the true church is very, very loose. There's a lot of talk in Scripture about liberty, but don't use your liberty as a stumbling block for your brother. So there's this great use, this great opportunity 
of liberty to grow in Christ. We have about 30 seconds left. Uh, any final words from either of you on this really amazing subject? I would say, Rick, I, I think the scriptures are important for us to understand as individuals and our own due diligence in searching the scriptures. We can have confidence they're true, and our the onus is on us to do the the personal search and and to internalize those scriptures. All right, thank you, Len. Jim? The accuracy of the history and the prophecies is ample enough a validation for the scriptures. They are for us to direct us how to live, because the character we develop is that which we're going to have in the resurrection. All right, well, Jim and Len, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We really appreciate your expertise, your patience with me, uh, and uh, contributing to, to understanding something really important, that is our Bible. So thank you both. Thank you. Folks, understand the importance of this subject and the importance of what you've heard for the last couple of hours. It's all about finding out the core values of God's plan by looking at His Word through the pen of men uh, preserved for our benefit so we can follow what's in Scripture to study to show ourselves approved unto God. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us this morning. We will be back again next week with another subject. But till then, open up your Bible and thank God. Think about it.